Thank you for being here this morning. We are considering uh, a series this summer. Today is the final day of our series. We've called simply the 12, and we've considered the lives of the 12 disciples or apostles of Christ. Today we come to the one uh, called the traitor, Judas Iscariot. Um, everything that we could say positively about uh, the other men, we cannot say about Judas Iscariot. In fact, his very name has become synonymous with the word traitor. And uh, we shall see that. It's interesting that if you talk to Christian people who, for the most part, in my experience, are kind people, merciful people, people who want to uh, see the best in people, you will invariably find someone who will say, well, you know, we, we really don't know about Jesus. We really don't know where he ended up. Or, you know, for all we know, he might have, he might have, he might have, he might have. And they're, they're trying to be redemptive for this man. Well, I want to suggest to you that's a good character trait. We should all be that way. But once, once the die is cast, that is to say, once in this case the man finished his life, and he finished his life by his own hand, by the way, once he finished his life, he, he is what he is, just like you and I. We are what we are. We're not what our mom wanted us to be or our spouse wanted us to be or our children wanted us to be or our great 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 grandchildren some of you are into genealogy you've read the wills of your thrice great or fourth great or fifth great grandparents and you just want them to be saints turns out they aren't they weren't they might have been Christian they might have been great people by people's standards, but turns out they're just not people without flaws. Well, in this case, Judas had flaws, and they were fatal flaws, and they were eternal flaws. The Bible offers no platform, no ground for believing that Judas somehow came to repentance. This man was damned. And for those of us who are going to heaven, we shall never see him. And so there is a sobering truth to Judas that's different from the others. The tone of consideration as regards Judas is different in the Bible. The Bible never offers reconciliation as regards Judas. It never offers hope as regards Judas. So I will approach this uh, in the same way, only different. And I hope it will be helpful for us so that we can not only challenge ourselves, but that we can be persons of influence with others to warn them against the path that Judas chose for himself. So we start with a little biographical information. Parenthetically, let me say that uh, next to Peter and perhaps James and John, uh, we know more about Judas in the Scripture than we know of any other disciple. His name is mentioned repeatedly. If uh, you want to do an exhaustive study, you're going to have to go beyond the 30 minutes I have this morning. There's a lot of information about Judas, and I will offer some selected uh, points. <clears throat> First of all, we would consider his name Judas. Uh, his name Judas is not an unfamiliar name in the ancient Near East. Uh, it would have been a fairly common name. Iscariot, the name that we associate with him also, 
is not a surname. That's not his last name. Smith, Jones, Black, Brown, none of that. Iscariot uh, is a word that is debated. There's all kinds of scholarly material about what that really means. Uh, the majority opinion today is that it means that he's from a little town in Judea, South Judea, called Kerioth. He's the man, Ish, if you will, Ish is the Hebrew word for man. So Iscariot means the man from Kerioth. If you believe that theory, uh, that's fine. The Bible nowhere offers uh, an explanation as to what that word exactly means, but uh, it can mean that he is the man from Kerioth in Judea. Now, you, that, should, that should get your attention because where have all the rest of the disciples been from? Not Judea. They've been from Galilee. Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south. If that is true, Iscariot is a reference to his geographical, uh, if you will, town from which he's come. Then he is the only non-Galilean among the disciples. You, uh, you might suspect that would mean that he is uh, perhaps an outcast. He's kind of an ugly duckling among the disciples. In fact, you will find no Bible evidence to that effect. It seems that every bit of trouble that the other guys got into, he got in. And every time the Lord blesses the disciples or affirms the disciples or sends them out to do disciple work two by two and so forth and gives them challenges, whatever, Judas hears all of that. He's in all of that. And there is no suggestion in the Scripture that the guys are sitting around saying, this is a funny guy. That's not in the Bible. There is no suggestion. You know how sometimes these mystery thrillers, somebody will uh, prove themselves to be unreliable and somebody will stand up and say, I always thought that was the case. Well, that's not the case in the Bible. There is no suggestion in the Bible that Judas was any more suspicious than any other disciple. His call to follow Jesus is not recorded in the Scripture. We have the call of several of the other men, but not Judas. In every list of the disciples, you remember there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all offer a list. Judas is the last name, every list. And he's always identified as Judas the traitor. Always. There is a fourth list, Acts chapter 1, list him. Acts 1 is written, obviously, after the death of Jesus, or rather, after the, the death of Judas, and he is not recorded. In fact, Acts 1, there, there's a list of 11 disciples, not 12. Judas is not even mentioned. Acts 1 is given to the replacement. Matthias is the man who replaces Judas. We know nothing about Matthias. The Bible offers no help whatsoever as to understanding Matthias, so we'll move along. He is described in John 17, 12 as the son of destruction. That's the ESV's translation of the, the Greek word there that in the King James is translated perdition, the son of perdition. Now, most of us don't use the word perdition. Thus, the modern translations de define it differently or use different words that we would be familiar with. That comes from a word that means ruin or loss, ruin or loss. I did a Google search this week on the word perdition to see if there was a town in America named perdition. Many of you would know that Tom Hanks did a movie back in 2002 called The Road to Perdition. Do not watch that movie. This is not a recommendation to go watch that movie. Some of you already have. I see that grin on your face. Okay. 
road to perdition. Supposedly, this mythical town, and it is mythical, was located on the shore of Lake Michigan in Michigan. So perdition, Michigan. Turns out there is no perdition, Michigan, because there is no town in America named perdition. Because the word means destruction. Can you imagine? Come join our town. What would the Chamber of Commerce do with a town like that? Come to destruction. You'll love it. No, you won't. So there is no town in America named perdition. He is called in John 17, the son of destruction. We also know in John chapter 12, verse 6, that he is the treasurer of the disciples. He keeps the money bag. Somebody's got to keep the book, the checkbook. Somebody's got to have the money. And we know that person is Judas. We mentioned when we're considering Matthew that Matthew is a tax collector. And you might assume that because he deals with money, before he becomes a disciple, that he would deal with money after he becomes a disciple. In fact, that is not the case. We don't know why. The Bible offers no explanation. But Matthew is not the a treasurer of the disciples. Judas is. Uh, he was, he's described in Scripture as uh, just like the other men. He's extraordinarily ordinary. He's, he's not, he's not, taller he's not shorter he's not thinner he's not wider he's not richer he's not smarter he, he he's not more gifted he's not more eloquent he, he's extraordinarily ordinary which is true of all the disciples that's that's our takeaway from all of this that when god takes a man and he gives him his holy spirit he can take the ordinary among us which dare i say all of us qualify the ordinary among us and make us extraordinary not in the world sense, not many mighty, not many noble, not many strong, powerful, not many. But instead, we are merely ordinary people that God has infused by His Spirit to make extraordinary in the kingdom. In the kingdom. Consider that the Gentiles seek to be the greatest by assembling for themselves men and women of, of great renown. And they want to make celebrities of people. They want to make powerful people. They want to elevate people who have what the world describes as credentials. They have, they have particular giftings, or they have particular amounts of money, or they have particular influence, or they've done some superhuman feat, or accomplished some superhuman accomplishment, or so forth. And the world wants to elevate those people and say, those people are more significant than you. And that is a lie. It's always amazing when the world finds it shocking that celebrities crash and burn. <laughs> Non-celebrities crash and burn too, don't they? Ordinary people crash and burn. The good news about being ordinary is that our crashes don't get broadcast to the world. But it doesn't mean they don't hurt. It doesn't mean they aren't real. It doesn't mean that we don't live in the same broken world that everybody else does. But Judas is extraordinarily ordinary. The Bible makes sure that we know that Judas is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus himself says in John 13, we're going to read a portion of this passage in a moment, but he says himself in John 13 that Jesus rather that Judas is the fulfillment of Psalm 41 9 we might read that passage 
Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. A reference to Judas, according to Jesus in John 13. He's also described by Matthew in his gospel, Matthew 27.9, as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew takes the words of Jeremiah and pairs them with the words of Zechariah, Jeremiah 19, Zechariah 11, pairs those two together and says, Judas is the fulfillment. And he quotes and he attributes that to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the more prominent prophet. He attributes those words to Jeremiah, but it's really a, a combination of two Old Testament references, Jeremiah and Zechariah. And he announces that, in fact, Judas is the fulfillment of that prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy. We think about that this morning in deep ways, I hope. Just a couple more details about Judas's life. We know that he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Leviticus tells us that that is the typical price of a female slave, 30 pieces of silver. A male slave would have sold roughly for 50 pieces of silver. The question begs asking is, well, how silver is silver? I mean, for us today, we would say, well, silver is very valuable, and 30 pieces of silver would be worth a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. But that particular phrase, silver, probably just means to the standard Roman coin, typically silver. So it's probably a reference to a denari denarius, and that's, a, as we've said before, a, a working man's wage for a day's labor. So that's basically 30 days' pay for a working man. Pick a number that you think a working man makes, multiply it times 30, and that's what Judas sold Jesus for. We also know, lastly, that Judas uh, went out and hanged himself after failing to reverse his actions. Matthew 27, we know that things didn't work out the way he thought they would. In fact, we might read that for a moment. Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, and all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, they bound him, they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So, by way of summary, Jesus has had a trial before the Jewish authorities, but the Jewish authorities have no power to crucify. But they have determined in the Jewish trial to recommend him to Pilate, the Roman authority, who does have the power to crucify, to recommend crucifixion. So the Jews, serving as it were, as the prosecuting attorney here in this situation, recommend to the judge, Pilate, that Jesus be crucified. So that's the first two verses of Matthew 27. That has transpired. All that happens in the middle of the night, which is against Jewish law. This is a kangaroo court of the first sort. So dawn has broken, and they bind him, and they lead him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, what does the Bible then say happens? Then, verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, that's the phrase that people who think that the son of destruction didn't go on to destruction seize upon. 
That, that verse sounds so sympathetic. Oh, I've failed. I've betrayed innocent blood. He knew that Jesus was innocent, etc. Well, absolutely, that's not the case. He, he, he does say that, and he does mean what he says, but he doesn't mean what so many suggest he means. You notice their response, the Jewish leaders. They say, what is that to us? Your feelings don't matter to us. Your sadness, your remorse, your grief over your actions, they don't, that doesn't matter to us. We don't care about your feelings. See to it yourself. And throwing, verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. So Judas hangs himself after failing to reverse his actions. So the last thing I would simply say about Judas is that apparently he's experiencing great remorse. Now, there's, there are many theories, and all of them are theories, and, and, and your theory is as fine a theory as anybody else's theory. But there are many theories, and the, but the predominant one is that Judas actually thought that he could force Jesus' hand. Judas, again, we, we know this to be true of all the disciples, that the disciples' picture of a Messiah was a nationalistic patriot. He was going to come and... He was going to be the, the return of King David. And what do we know about King David? King David is a military man, a general who becomes king, or becomes king and then a general, and he, and he expands the borders, and he builds prosperity, and he, and he brings safety to the people, and, and, and there's nobody messing with Israel as long as David is king. And the son of David is coming. And when the Messiah comes, we're going to return to the glory days, the halcyon days of, of, of great political independence and propriety on the world stage. We're going to become the superpower that God intends for his people to become. And you can spin that and spin that and chew on that. And you can say, well, yeah, we're the special people. And all of that feeds into this notion that the, when the Messiah comes, he is going to put an end to all of this. And we are going going to be his people. And here's Judas. Why is Judas a disciple? Well, if, if this theory or narrative is true, Judas is a disciple because he, he's, he's a politician. He's thinking about the advantage that he's going to have. He's thinking about being next to Messiah. What's wrong with that? I mean, that, that caters to the base instincts in, in every man who wants to be important, wants to be powerful, wants to be respected, and wants to, wants to be thought of as significant. And, and here's Judas. I'm on the inside. I carry the purse. He trusts me with the money. I, I'm the guy. And after three years of Ministry, watching, watching Jesus, he's aware of the miracles. He's aware of, of, of all the dynamics and power associated with this man. He's seen him walk on water. He's seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. He's seen him do all of these miracles, taking a boy's lunch and feeding possibly as many as 15,000 people with it, etc. He's seen all of this. He knows this is not some Johnny-come-lately. This is not some guy who's just wearing the button. He's the true Messiah. Which begs the question, why did he betray him? Don't know. Again, the theory is, if, if we force his hand, if they come 
with sticks and clubs and swords. He's going to have to quit playing this shenanigan game of being the sheep led to slaughter. He's going to bow up and he's going to become the Messiah that we want him to become. But Judas has no regard for the Messiah he is. He just has regard for the Messiah he wants him to be. Can I lean into that with you for a moment this morning? I don't know what you think Jesus is. Maybe he's your good luck charm. Maybe he's your buddy, buddy, buddy. Maybe he's just some religious placebo that you stay next to. Or maybe you just think he's your heavenly sugar daddy who's supposed to take care of all your problems and eliminate all your sicknesses and protect you from harm and hurt. Well, to some degree, all of that half-truth is true, right? Jesus is our heavenly resource. He is the one who's our advocate before the Father. He is the one who's standing at the right hand of the Father right now praying for us, who knows our burdens, who has invited us to come to him, all of us who are weary and heavy laden. He is all that. But we don't get the privilege or the right to recreate Jesus in our image. I, I, I was counting on Jesus. I was counting on Jesus. People have said this over the years. I, I was counting on Jesus and he let me down. <laughs> well, just because you say he let you down doesn't mean he let you down. Just because you say I'm eight feet tall doesn't make me eight feet tall. So Jesus hadn't let you down. But you have misjudged Jesus, perhaps. Well, there is a misjudgment that's sort of superficial, right? And then there is a misjudgment that is damning. If your idea of Messiah is Judas' idea of Messiah, then you are damned. It matters today who Jesus is. And it matters that you know who he is. And that you embrace him for who he is. It matters. Because if not, the stakes are higher than any decision you have ever contemplated in your entire life. Judas calculated that Jesus would perhaps have his hand forced by these people who come in the middle of the night with swords and torches when it didn't work out and they pronounced that he should be crucified by dawn the next morning. Judas went back, circled back and said, here's your money back. No harm, no foul. Right, guys? No. We don't really care. 
We've got him. And you got to deal with your own conscience. You got to deal with your own guilt. You got to deal with your own feelings. That's not our problem. So I've come this morning to say, I hope you do have feelings. I hope you do sense your need to deal with those feelings, to deal with your conscience. If you're here without Christ, I want you to know that the way to deal with Christ is totally the other direction from the way Judas deals with Christ. Judas deals with Christ poorly, and it results in his damnation. Let us not make the same mistake. So I want to make four, if time permits, four. If not, if I get to three, then you just have to hit me up later, and I'll tell you the fourth one. Four applications of Judas's life. By the way, I could, I could go on. There are probably 14 that come to mind, but I've chosen these as the things I think are the most important for our hearts this morning. What should we learn about Judas, and how should we apply it to our lives? First of all, sorrow for one's actions or the resulting consequences of our actions is not the same as godly repentance. Sorrow for our actions. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that hurts you. That's not repentance. I'm sorry that offends you. That's not repentance. I'm sorry that things didn't work out, or I'm sorry that somehow that resulted in some sort of difficulty for people. I'm sorry that this blew up. I'm sorry that I misjudged, or I'm sorry that things just didn't work out. That is not repentance. Nobody is truly repentant. A guilty conscience does not automatically constitute repentance. And make no mistake about it, Judas contends with a guilty conscience. Again, in Matthew 27, 3, he says, verse 4 rather, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's guilty. He feels guilty. He has a guilty conscience. By the way, the reason he has a guilty conscience is because he is guilty. Many times we feel guilty because we are guilty. I say many because sometimes we feel guilty because it's a false guilt, because it's an evidence of our own pride. I feel guilty that I caused a problem. I feel guilty that I uh, uh, made some mistake, or I feel guilty that I hurt somebody, etc. That, that's, not, that's not exactly what's going on here. He feels guilty because he is guilty. But feeling guilty does not automatically constitute repentance. Repentance is different. His conscience condemned him, but he did not look to God for mercy. What should you do? What should I do? What should all of us do when we feel like we have sinned against God or sinned against someone? We should appeal to that someone, God and others, and say, I am wrong. Please forgive me. Not, I'm sorry that my actions hurt you and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have wanted that for the world. Can I just tell you that, buddy? You're just putting lipstick on a pig there. That's not true repentance. It's not true sorrow. I don't like the circumstances. I came from a family of four boys. My mom had four boys in five years. We grew up fighting all the time. I mean fights. I could tell you stories. Stories. 
And every time we got in a fight, there were consequences. And like every other mother, including my own children, I watch them as they mother their children. They'll instruct their children, go over and tell her you're sorry. Go over and ask her to forgive you. And of course, they dutifully do it. When you're four, you do what your mother tells you to do, right? No, <laughs> sometimes. So the four-year-old goes over and he tells his two-year-old sister, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Okay, that's important. That's what you should do with small children. But do you know how true that is? I mean, do you know, in, if you could look inside the heart of my four-year-old self years ago or my four-year-old grandson now, is there a willingness to actually do that? Well, there's a willingness to not bear the ire of mom if you fail to do that. But do you really want to go tell your sister you're sorry? You know, if you're really, 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 really contrite, there's something going on in here that's different than what you normally see. We hedge our bets. We don't look to God for mercy. We don't look to God for forgiveness. We don't look to Christ to restore us. Judas does none of these things. He appeals to the religious leaders. Forgive me, I have done something wrong. Forgive me, I have miscalculated. Forgive me, this plan is not working the way I thought it was going to be. Here's the money back. Let's, let's start over, so to speak. That's not godly repentance. That is not. That is just sorrow for actions or regret for actions. There is one remedy for guilt in Scripture, one. And that is repentance toward God, one. You want to deal with your sin? Repent toward God. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. Ask Him for forgiveness. Confess your sins. God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Are you brokenhearted over your sin? Are you brokenhearted? Not just calculating a failed plan, but actually brokenhearted. The Bible in the Old Testament uses this phrase that that, that we are but worms before God. That's not the way the sensitive ears of modern man likes to think of themselves. It's just a worm. We're just a worm before God. The point, of course, is that we humble ourselves. That, we, the, 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 that imagery is one of, of being of little significance. Frankly, where I'm from, worms are just fish bait. We're going to go drown worms. We have such little regard for worms, we're going to drown every cotton pig in one of them. So sorrow for one's actions, or sorrow for the resulting consequences of our actions, is not the same as godly repentance. You need to help yourself with that, and you need to help those who you are in a position to influence, whether it's children, or co-workers, or roommates, or neighbors or people in the church or, or, or people in the community, you need to help them see that, that simply sorrow for actions or sorrow for consequences is not the same as godly repentance. We must go to God and find our way. That brings us to the second thing, and that is that the only antidote for sin, the only antidote for sin is forgiveness. The only solution for sin is forgiveness. The only way to absolve ourselves of this guilt is forgiveness. We must be forgiven. 
Now, if I sin against a person, it matters that that person give me forgiveness. By the way, the Bible says to Christian people that if a person seeks your forgiveness, you are 100% of the time obligated to give that forgiveness. And then, in fact, when you don't give forgiveness to someone who seeks that forgiveness from you, you put a barrier between yourself and God. And in fact, you may be suggesting by not forgiving that one that you yourself are not forgiven. Which means you are a son of destruction also. Forgiveness is not a minor theme in the Bible. In fact, it is the major theme. Forgiveness. You might ask the simple question, what's the Bible all about? You could say, well, the holiness of God. You could say the sinfulness of man. Both of those would be true. What's the Bible all about? Read the Old Testament. And the narrative of the Old Testament is not about how good people are. The narrative of the Old Testament is even the best of them. Let's say David. You know the guy with the heart of God? The guy pursuing the heart of God. The guy who's a man after God's own heart. Even David. Moses, the meekest of all men on the earth. Job, who's the greatest man in the East. The, the narrative of the Bible is not about their righteousness. The narrative of the Bible is about their failures. So you would be right that the purpose of the Bible is to elevate the holiness of God. And secondly, that the purpose of the Bible is to elevate the sinfulness of man. But I will tell you the narrative of the Bible is to figure out how to bridge that gap. Because if God is here and I'm here, that's a problem. If you're in my family and you don't live with me, you don't get any money from me, you don't get any affection from me, you don't get any loving from me, you don't, you don't get any time with me, you don't have a relationship. You're in my family, but we don't have a relationship. That's not a family. You want to be in the family of God? You've got to have a relationship. And the only way a holy God is going to put up with a sinner turkey like you and me is if you solve that forgiveness problem. So the purpose of the Bible is to hold up forgiveness and to say God is merciful. God is full of mercy to sinners, to turkeys like us. And he wants us to come to him. And he invites us to come to him. And he even makes a way, if you will, he paves the road for us to get there by condemning his son in our place. How do you get forgiveness? Because Jesus was punished in your place. And so the only antidote for sin is forgiveness. What Judas missed, you must not. You cannot. Or you too will end up a son of destruction. That brings us to a third thing. I invite you to turn to John 15. John 15. By the way, Matthew and John deal with Judas's life more than Mark and Luke. Luke tells us a couple things that the others don't, but for the most part, the, 
The, the largest narrative of Judas' life occurs in Matthew and John. And John, in particular, has much to say about Judas. I'll show you this momentarily. But I want to begin here in John 15 and make a third application. And that is simply, those who do not abide in Christ will be judged and destroyed. Those who do not abide in Christ will be judged and destroyed. If Judas's life means anything to you today, it is that God will judge. Look at these familiar words, John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. We just flushed a rabbit. We need to chase him a minute. Do you realize that if you're the vine dresser, you work on every branch? You work on the branches that are yours and you cut them. You trim them. You prune them. Some of you are feeling the pruning of God right now. That means you're a branch. You're a living branch. The pruning of God takes a lot of shapes and sizes. comes in all kinds of packages. But I... I've never interviewed a branch. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that every branch doesn't like to be pruned. A cut is a cut is a cut. If you're being cut right now, it may mean because you are a branch of the vine dresser and he owns you and he wants you to bear more fruit. But there is a second way the vine dresser deals with branches, and that is there are some branches that are not his. Have you ever noticed how you can plant shrubbery and then there are these little vines that grow up that don't look like your shrubbery? Have you ever noticed that these little oak trees will grow up in your shrubbery? Most of you don't because I've been by your house and you let this stuff grow. And if you've got a Laura Pedalum that's bigger than your car, you've got a problem. That's another story. I am anti-Laura Pedalum. If it's purple, it might be maroon. Get rid of it. No, no, that's not why. They're just huge. They're big. They're too big. Get rid of them. Kill them. Get rid of them. Throw them away. And you see, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The vine dresser knows what he's doing. He's looking for fruit. And if you're not fruit bearing, you may not be his. Now, again, he may be pruning you because you are his and he wants you to bear fruit. But he may be pruning you because you're not his. I'm in no position to tell you whether you're his. But you need to know that there are two kinds of people that the vine dresser is working on. Some are his and some are not, but he's working nonetheless. And the notion that God is not at work, that God's not running the show, that God's not taking care of his vineyard is completely bogus. 
He knows what he's doing, and he can recognize the difference between an oak tree and a lorpedalum, even though you can't. So, having caught that rabbit, let's move along. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's the money verse, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. What do you do with branches that are not welcome, that are dead, that are not producing? What do you do with branches that are not your branches? You throw them away and you burn them. That's a metaphor for the what he's, the point he's trying to make is those who are mine are mine, and those who are not mine are not mine, and they will face judgment because they are not mine. So those who do not abide in Christ, to use the term Jesus uses in John 15, will be judged, they will be cut off, and they will be burned. They will be destroyed. Why is Judas called the son of destruction? Because he was destroyed. The warning there is not to sit high and mighty on your pedestal and say, oh, he's a bad man and I'm a good man, but rather to ask yourself first and foremost, am I any different than this man? Am I motivated by money? Am I motivated by power? Am I motivated by worldly acclaim, etc.? Who knows all that motivates Judas? But you have to ask yourself, who am I? What am I? Am I his? There is no question today more important than that. There's one last question. There is one last application that I want to make. And it's found in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he... He says something here that challenges us. Verse 22, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, remember they, they just accused them that it's 9 o'clock in the morning and, and they're speaking in tongues. So the accusation is you're drunk. You, you guys are drunk. 9 o'clock in the morning. So Peter has begun back in verse 15 to say, Come on, guys, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk. But what you're seeing is the fulfillment of the prophecy told by the prophet Joel. And so he builds upon that. Now he comes to verse 22, and he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, meaning Jesus, in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let's stop there a moment. Peter makes this point that really, really 
weirds us out. We don't know what to do with it because our minds can't wrap around this half of the story. The other half is going to be far easier to understand, but this half of the story is difficult to understand. Peter says, this man whom you crucified, God delivered up according to his plan, his predetermined plan. So, some would say, wrongly, because they don't know what they're talking about, but they talk nonetheless, and they will pollute your minds because they're wrong. But some will say, well, man bears no guilt because God did this. To which I would say, have you read Acts 2? Because nowhere does the Bible blame God. Everywhere the Bible blames Judas and the religious leaders and the Romans. Everywhere the Bible blames men, not God. But everywhere the Bible tells us that this is the plan. The plan is that Jesus would leave the heaven's glory and that he would come to earth and that he would live a sinless life and that he would die in our place. That's the plan. And somehow you can't just... Did y'all know I carry a flashlight with me everywhere I go? Real men carry flashlights. In fact, I actually have a second flashlight. There you go. There you go. I actually have a second flashlight. Look at that. Is that not a beaut? I mean, that is just gorgeous. Lady who works with Susan gave me that, and that's a prize treasure right there. All right, but what would happen if I had to throw this flashlight down on the ground? Just random, just throw that down on the ground. Again, this is God just throwing Jesus into the world. Just, just throwing Jesus into the world. And, and there's, no, there's no action, there's no plan, there's no, there's no, just a flashlight. I would ask you, is that thing going to turn on? Not by me. Is that thing going to produce? Is it going to work in the manner in which we need it to work? Is it going to shine that direction or that direction or that direction? Is it going to work? No, it's a flashlight, and it's, there's, no, there's no human agency working on it at all. It's just a flashlight. A fine flashlight, by the way. It served me well, but it's just a flashlight, and there's no human agency. But I have a plan that that, that, that flashlight is going to work, but I have no power to bring that to be, and I have no agency to cause that to be. Does that sort of weird you out with God? The Bible says in Acts 2, Peter's preaching, we're not, we're not drunk, we're full of the Holy Spirit. So what you see happening here is, in fact, the work of God. And the work of God is really hard to explain. And the typical way to explain the work of God is to blame it on alcohol in their day. And today, people blame the work of God on all kinds of other stuff. You know, it's magic, or it's, it's coincidence, or it's luck, or it's, it's just bad people doing bad things, or any number of other things. And yet, Peter, who knows Christ better than you, says, what you're seeing is the work of God. So let's put that in our brain and know that God is at work. That God is at work in the mysterious. God is at work in the hard. God is at work, watch this, even in the sinful work of men. Dr. Park and I are going to teach a workshop this fall on the book of Genesis. 
And this is pictured beautifully in the life of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery, and he lives. You, you will see when we get to Genesis 50, which is the last chapter. So you've got to wait till December before I say this again. It's really kind of sad, because I like to say it a lot. But when you get to the 50th chapter of Genesis, Joseph stands before his brothers, and his brothers are quaking in their boots because they've just been outed as the ones who sold him, and he has now revealed himself to them, and they think he's got the heavenly hammer, and he's going to drop it on them, and he's going to kill them. He says that. They think that. But Joseph instead turns it around in, John, and rather in Genesis 50, 20, and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You got that one figured out? I bet you don't. God is at work even in the sinfulness of people. People say all the time, why would God permit that? Why would God allow that? When is God going to fix this? When is God going to solve this? The notion implied there is God is passive, standing back and just watching men destroy themselves do you find a passive God anywhere in here no friend he's at work right now he's at work in your stuff in your junk and in your friend's junk and your family's junk your church's junk in the world's junk, God is at work. I've never given a child for anything. You've never given a child for anything. But if any one of us ever gave our child so that people could live, we would not have a disconnected relationship God gave his only begotten son not for you to ignore him and not for you to patronize him and not for you to manipulate him into your image or for your agenda and you can try to push him and malign him and form him into your thinking but that is not going to be effective. You can even sin against him and seek to destroy him like Judas. And that too is not going to be effective. Because God has a plan and he's working his plan. And the fact that you and I don't understand the details doesn't change a thing. Go back to Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You crucified him. God didn't crucify him. You did. And he was killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, they got the law behind them. Well, they were lawless anyway. Lawless men. 
So God's working, man's working. And somehow, in the midst of all that, God gets his plan done. I don't know what God's up to in your life right now. I don't know the details of that. Maybe you're struggling with your details. But you can't read the story of Judas' life without blaming Judas for what happened to Jesus. You can't read the story of Jesus' life without blaming the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You can't read the story of Jesus' life without blaming Pilate for, for crucifying him. You cannot absolve those people of their guilt. You cannot. But neither can you forget that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And if those evil men had not done their evil deeds, you would not have a Savior. So somehow you step back from that and say, glory. What a God. What a God who even in the tyranny of men, even in the lawlessness of men, even in the selfishness of man, even in the unrighteousness of man, even in the pagan people that we find ourselves growing up in the midst of, even as dark seems to be encroaching upon light, which is not true, just seems to be. Nonetheless, even as these things happen before our eyes, we know that God is at work, God is glorious, and that God is doing more than we could ever imagine. And the fact that you don't understand it is your problem, not his. And the fact that you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not happening. Praise God we live in a world that God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And he's doing it exactly with the people that he wants to do, including this congregation. Glory to God. Our lives matter. Our, our prayers matter. Our money matters. Our giving matters. Our going matters. Our doing matters. Every little thing we do matters because we don't want to prove ourselves to be non-fruit bearing. We don't want to go the way of the burned branches. We don't want to go the way of Judas. We want to repent, run to God, find forgiveness, be whole before God, and live our lives in the midst of this battleground until we die. One day, promoting ourselves by God's sweet grace to glory, true glory. This ain't home and it doesn't look like it. We're not going to be home next week either. I got to quit, but I'm going to tell you, friend, don't read Judas' story and say, ah, he turned out okay. No. No, he's a son of perdition, son of destruction. He died. He died and went to hell, not because he committed suicide. That's a pagan medieval doctrine. He went to hell because he rejected the plan of God for his forgiveness. He rejected the extension of mercy. So I would ask you, how about you? Have you come to Jesus? I hope so. If not, why not today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sweet mercy to us. Pray your grace upon us as we follow you. Help us to be reconciled to God and be reconciled to one another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.